folks, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the large collaborative network at Keras Life Sciences that combines many academic institutions and healthcare systems, all collaborating on molecular profiling, big data research, with the ultimate goal of improving the outcomes of all patients with cancer. One of the initiatives that we started at Keras Life Sciences and the POA was a couple of years ago when we formed the Healthcare Disparities Council with the idea that we hopefully can conduct research to understand why some disparities in cancer care and outcomes exist in the United States and how can we understand these disparities and what type of strategies can we do to mitigate these disparities and hopefully improve the outcomes of everyone diagnosed with cancer. And uh, the Healthcare Disparities Council combines many policy researchers and physicians who are passionate about this kind of research. And today I am hosting Dr. Tina Batnagar from West Virginia University, who has done a lot of work in the disparities field and is going to share with me and you the type of disparities research, why we do the disparities research, the type of methodology and work that we need to do to better answer questions that are really important, and then what we can do to really uh, mitigate these disparities that we uh, uh, many times observe. Look, I think it goes without saying that the reasons disparities exist could be multifactorial. Sometimes a genetic mutation exists more commonly in a particular patient population versus another. Sometimes the type of treatment that is being received is different. Sometimes the pharmacogenomics and the way the uh, patient responds to the same therapy might actually differ. There are also social determinants of health that play a major role uh, defining the outcomes of patients with cancer. Now, when we look at all of these various factors, I think it's important to understand how we study these disparities because we have to be really designing strategies based on data and based on information. And that, that is one of the main purposes of the Healthcare Disparities Council at the Keras Precision Oncology Alliance. Without further ado, Dr. Tina Batnagar on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Tina, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule. I'd like to start by making sure our listeners know a little bit about you, your career path. Um, How did you get to where you are right now? Well, first of all, thank you, Chatty, for the opportunity to speak on your podcast today. Um, As uh, as you mentioned, uh, my name is uh, Tina Batnagar. I am a primarily a hematologist. Um, I've spent most of my career focusing on malignant hematology, specifically acute um, acute leukemias, and I am currently the medical director of hematology and medical oncology at West Virginia University Cancer Institute Wheeling Hospital. Um, I've been here for almost two years, um, so I'm currently working in a hybrid community slash academic setting. Prior to that, I had been working at um, at uh, the Ohio State University for approximately eight years, where I specialized in the management of patients with 
AML and ALL. And in that space, I also became passionate about disparities research. And um, I'm hoping to deepen that since I'm here in West Virginia, which is historically underserved. And, um, and there are disparities here too with respect to survival outcomes and a number of measures and, and for patients who live in these more rural areas. I like that you said the Ohio State University, right? I mean, you know, God forbid somebody listens to the show and they don't actually hear that, you'd be in trouble. I would be dinged for that, yes. <laughs> well, Tina, um, we hear a lot about disparities research. I mean, people talk about disparities research, disparities strategy, all of this. In your own words, when you hear that um, phrase, disparities research, a, what comes to your mind, but what does it really mean in the academic community when, when we talk disparities research? I think that's a great question and, and really kind of a philosophical one, <laughs> um, if, you, if you think about it. So to me, disparities research has to do with differences in some sort of an outcome measure between certain groups of people. And I think disparities research is designed to determine why those differences exist and what we can do to address those differences in order to assure that there's more equitable health care. Uh, for people irrespective of where they live, what their educational status is, what their race is, things like that is what comes to my mind personally. It seems to me I'm hearing more about that than before. Like, you know, I mean, I'm much older than you, but when I started my, you know, like my residency or my fellowship, it just wasn't always in the news. This is, is there, am I correct in in realizing that this is a little bit more commonly uh, mentioned and if that's the case why is there a specific reason or a trigger that made us uh, more interested today than 20 years ago yeah so I think there has always been researchers or there have always been researchers who have focused on disparities research and I could see that when I was doing a lot of background reading and literature searching for the projects that I've been involved with. I do agree with you that disparities have sort of come to the spotlight more so probably over the past two years since the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I think, you know, for various um, social reasons and things that were happening in current events, um, we started to become more aware as a society of the fact that certain groups of people are don't have access to the same resources as others. And I think it prompted a lot of work in multiple areas, just globally, including in the healthcare field to try to level the playing field a little bit. Take me like when you decide to do um, a disparities research project, how, how does this actually happen? What is the, you know, how do you come up with a theory for example, and then where do you find the data um, to prove or disprove the theory that you had? Um, and then that's like three questions in one, but, uh, and then the methodology, when you decide to conduct the type of uh, study with this, uh, are there specific methodologies that you need to uh, utilize uh, to, to address the research question? Yeah, I think 
as is the case with a lot of research studies, I think healthcare disparities work also begins with observations um, that you notice in your clinical practice or in other settings. And um, you might notice that certain people do better than others and some people don't do as well as others. Obviously, I'm, I'm an oncologist and hematologist. So, you know, we focus primarily on survival because that's usually the topic that's on the forefront of most patients' minds is how they're going to do from a survival standpoint once they're diagnosed with cancer. And so in the hemonc world, you know, you might notice that, you know, Black patients with a specific malignancy don't survive as long as white patients. And then you want to see if there's any, you know, if there's any real meat to that hypothesis by doing um, any one of a number of type of research projects. So certainly you could do retrospective analyses, kind of looking at charts of patients over a certain length of time and comparing essentially different groups of patients and seeing whether or not there are differences in survival access to things and um, and whether or not they correlate. I think you definitely need a strong statistician <laughs> um, who's able to uh, provide you with the accurate numbers of patients that you would need to see in order to legitimately say whether or not there's a difference in certain outcome measures. Um, so I think retrospective analysis, uh, population-based studies, epidemiologic studies also lend themselves well to this type of research. Prospective studies are what's lacking, and I think what, um, what we probably need to focus on moving forward, but they can be kind of difficult to design. We'll talk, I think I'd like to talk about the retrospective and the prospective type of an approach, but um, so, so you have an observation, for example, let's say that specific patient population um, is not doing as well. I think it goes without saying, that a lot of times maybe the reasons are multifactorial. I mean, it, you know, sometimes maybe there's like one glaring thing, right? I mean, who knows? But for for the most part, it's multifactorial. So so when you do these type of studies, how do you how do you find all of the elements that might be contributing to this? Like, where's the data source coming from? That is what's tough. <laughs> Because as you pointed out, um, when you are looking at disparities, it's generally not related to one specific factor. It's usually a combination of factors. Some of them are easy to track. Um, some of them are not easy to track and the data are not able to be collected. One of the biggest things that we know contributes to disparities are social determinants of health. Um, and now it's become um, much more widely used across hospital systems to collect that data on patients. But certainly, I would say even two, three years ago, that's not information that was readily collected on all of our patients. Um, but, um, but, you know, looking at now social determinants of health, um, you know, disease biology, outcome measures. Um, I think all of those things are, are what would go into collecting. But, you know, when you're analyzing the data and reporting it, it's always going to be important to mention that you can't account for every single variable that might explain why one group of patients does better than another. And, and nowadays, when you decide to do disparities research, I mean, are you able to do it without understanding the molecular underpinnings of the disease? Yes. 
Um, however, since we've been able to drill down into the biology of so many cancers now, I think the next step is going to be to use um, the molecular underpinnings of a certain person of a patient's cancer to determine whether or not there is any role uh, for genetic abnormalities in these racial disparities or in these disparities as well. You know, one of the things when I think about the molecular abnormalities, there are three things I think about, and I'd like you to react to them. One is the presence or absence of a particular driver, right? I mean, I think that, you know, there could be a cancer with the driver for the, the cancer more prevalent in a patient population versus another. And then there's the other possibility where there's no difference in prevalence of the driver, but there's difference in what type of treatments the patients receive. So me and you have the same driver, but I get different treatment than you. So my response and my outcome is going to be different than you. And then the third factor is that we have the same driver and we get the same treatment, but there is an element because we are from, let's say, two different races and ethnic uh, backgrounds. You know, um, my response will be different. Although I receive the same treatment, I receive the same mutate. Uh, I have the same mutation. So there's these three elements in my simple brain when I think about them. And I guess you, as a researcher in that field, how do you address these three things in your research evaluation? And I know you've done some work uh, that you presented uh, at a major uh, hematology meeting a couple of years ago. So. As you answer this, feel free to illustrate or provide example from your own work. Yes. Um, no, I think what you're getting at is a very important point, and it was something that we were trying to determine in our own research, which, you know, for the listeners and for people who are not familiar with it, just to use as an example, we had looked at mutational differences in addition to socioeconomic differences between black and white AML patients who were under the age of 60 years. And um, indeed, we did find that younger black AML patients um, in two data sets, your analysis and within the uh, CALGB, now the Alliance, uh, cooperative group trials also showed lower uh, overall survival in, in younger Black patients. And we tried to explain this in a couple of different ways. One was looking at various socioeconomic factors, and the other part of it was looking at mutational profiles in, between patient, between younger Black and white AML patients. And so, um, so to your point, we sort of observed all three of the things that you were talking about. There were certain genetic mutations that seem to be more common um, in, um, in, in younger in younger black uh, AML patients compared to younger white AML patients. One of those mutations is actually IDH2, um, for which there is a targeted therapy. And so, um, but even black, young, black patients with that mutation were, uh, had a worse prognosis than white patients. So it's quite possible that these mutations that are now actionable um, may have something to do with these disparities. And then we also observed that um, 
that even patients, so there's a lot of what we call favorable risk genetic features in, in black AML patients as well, more so than what you see in the white AML population. And for whatever reason, even these patients who have favorable risk disease defined as having poor binding factor leukemia, or even some reports of acute promyelocytic leukemia, those patients who should theoretically do better actually do worse. And the other subgroup of patients, which we noticed were the NPM1 mutated patients. So NPM1, in the absence of a high allylic FLT3 ITD, are, is considered a good risk genetic lesion. Um, but what we noticed is that in the NPM1 mutated uh, black patients, their survival was worse um, than the NPM1 mutated white patients. So there is definitely some element there that you can't necessarily put your finger on that seems to be driving this. And so it does sort of beg the question about pharmacogenomics and do they respond to treatments differently? It's that, that that information is unclear. So I don't know that I can fully answer your question. It's quite possible that what we're seeing on a molecular level might be driven by all three things um, that you had inquired about. But I do think that larger studies are gonna be necessary uh, to determine what degree the mutational uh, status of these cancers plays in people's responses to therapy and their social environment and how long they survive. Does that answer your question? It does, it does. And I think it, it, it does illustrate though that have you not had these patients in the example you provide undergo molecular sequencing, you wouldn't even be able to detect the NPM1. And, and I mean, you, it just seems to me that this is becoming increasingly an important part of addressing the various uh, possibilities of uh, disparities. And one of the questions that come to mind, uh, Tina, is that, um, that uh, underrepresented minorities don't undergo molecular profiling as commonly as Caucasians. Uh, I've seen that published somewhere, and there are various factors why this happens. What's your impression of this? Is this also true observation in your mind? And if that's the case, what do we do to provide them more access to cutting-edge diagnostics? Well, you are right, and I know which paper you're referring to. Um, and, and so there is, um, although getting a molecular profile on every newly diagnosed AML patient, for instance, is considered standard of care on diagnosis, there are definitely um, some represented minorities who do not have that necessary testing. A lot of that has to do with, um, with geographical location and where they are. Um, a lot of folks are diagnosed sometimes at smaller hospitals where it's not easy to obtain um, the genetic testing. I know um, it's, uh, and in some places, too, you have to send out the genetic testing, and it takes two weeks to get the results. And for a patient that has a highly proliferative AML, you just need to start making decisions about therapy. You don't have two weeks to wait. So I think the access, um, depending on how they're actually entering the hospital system to get the proper diagnostic testing, is definitely something I've seen um, that could contribute to why they're not getting their uh, next generation sequencing studies completed. And then also just um, the, the, the amount of time it takes to get the relevant data uh, from wherever those tests are being run, whether it's internally within a, institute, within a tertiary care center or whether it's a send out. But I mean, the disparities, I mean, I know that you've done that work in, in leukemia, but I think the disparities broadly 
are prevalent across all diseases. They're not really specific to leukemia. Is that fair? Very fair. I mean, are you currently working on any specific project uh, in that particular area after you did the other project? And um, uh, I'm very curious about what you mentioned, the geography piece. It's really interesting. It's, um, you know, you're right now at West Virginia. It makes me wonder, let's say the observations that you may see at West Virginia may be completely different than California. Uh, do you think the environment also part of this geographic uh, differences play a role in contributing to disparities? I do. I really do. Um, I was telling several colleagues that I might have been telling you. Um, so I've been taking care of AML patients for about 15 years. And uh, in general, I see, you know, a broad range of biological heterogeneity within their disease type. And ever since coming to West Virginia, I've no, I have not taken care of any good risk AML patients. Um, there have been no core binding factor AML patients. I haven't seen any NPM1 mutated patients. Everybody I've seen has had poor risk disease. So monosomal karyotypes, TP53 mutations, complex karyotypes. Um, and it's, 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 pretty striking. And so I am interested in exploring that further to see if there are, um, you know, what, what the reasons for that could be, the outcomes in, in West Virginia for, again, I, I'm sort of sticking to leukemia because that's sort of where I focused my practice, but for leukemia and a lot of other cancers in this region, the outcomes for the, for the patients is really not good compared to what it is nationally. And so, um, I am working to explore that further and trying to not just explore it, but to figure out interventions that could be utilized to help um, alleviate some of those disparities. You know, why is the, I, I definitely want to know why their genetics, their cancer genetics look so bad out here. And also how can we get to people diagnosed sooner? Are there other novel treatments that need to be pursued for these patients? When we talk about the environment, is there repository data to tell you air pollution, certain toxins? Like, where do you even start? We probably could see if there if there is a repository. I, I'm not aware of any repository out here. It very well may exist, and I'm just not familiar with it. But I think certainly collecting things like smoking history, occupational exposures, um, you know, what, whether they drink well water or not, um, all of those things could potentially help, um, help elucidate what is causing clusters of people in the same region to have these biologically aggressive looking cancers <laughs> um, and, and what you need to do about it and whether we have to, just as a public health concern, work to, to remove some of those exposures. You know, the hope is that... Uh... I guess the hope is that with all of the uh, research that you are doing and your colleagues are doing, uh, maybe some of this would lead to certain policy changes that will mitigate uh, disparities. Any hope of seeing this in the next few years? I think it's very possible, especially because we can better characterize people's cancers um, on a deep molecular level. And so I think it will be in the not too distant future where we'll be able to make certain associations between environmental factors, um, geography, and the development of these molecular lesions. Anything else I should have asked you, uh, Tina, that I completely forgot? Anything else? 
No, I think um, I think you covered everything really well, Shadi. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you joining the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I mean, um, you know, and look forward to your participation in our Healthcare Disparities Council, uh, part of the Precision Oncology Alliance. And uh, please continue the amazing work you're doing. Hopefully, we'll catch up uh, in in few months or early next year, and we'll see much more progress in that arena. Thank you so much, Dr. Tina Batangar. Uh, Of course, I started your last name as usual, you know. Thank you so much for visiting with me on the Keras Molecular Minute. Thank you. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening and for tuning in. I appreciate your support. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, the Keras Molecular Minute podcast, rate the show, and let all of your friends and colleagues know about the show. Don't forget to let me know what you think by emailing me at cnabhan at krsls.com and following me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. Thank you. Until next time.